Um, I want to invite you to open up in your, your copy of the Word of God to, to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. This is what we do. We work through the texts of Scripture. And what God has for us, we know is providentially arranged for us to hear in the mornings we hear it. And we're thankful for that, that we know He has good in store for us to feed us from His Word. As you're turning there, I wonder if you can identify with this, that three of the hardest words to say are, I was wrong. You ever have to say that one? I was wrong. It is hard for us to say that because we don't like to be wrong. It's especially hard to say, I was wrong, when you were so convinced you were right. And you maybe argued for your position, and you had all kinds of reasons for why you were right, and then you began to realize you were not right. Your reasons began to crumble underneath you. You began to realize maybe what I thought was right all along was not right. I've done it. Even recently I've done it. I won't tell the story. You'll have to talk to Ashley about that one. Isn't it funny that we can be so convinced about things that we're so right about, so absolutely convinced and certain that we are correct in our view and our understanding of something, that we are certain and we have our arguments and we are absolutely confident, and yet we're wrong. And this could be silly things. You know, you're wrong about who you think will win the game, You're wrong about what you think the weather might be next week. Silly things like that with no real big consequence. But what if there were things that you were absolutely certain of that had great consequence? That you had certainties in your heart and in your mind that you were banking your life on. That you were making huge decisions in your life according to the certain belief that you had. This has happened more than once. I mean, I could give you example after example. Some of the more tragic ones are related to certain cults I'm sure you've heard of. I was reading this week about Jim Jones. Some of you might remember the leader who convinced 918 of his followers to drink Kool-Aid laced with cyanide as an act of revolutionary suicide for their beliefs. Highly confident and severely wrong. Or even more recently, I remember as an elementary school student, 1997 was the year when the Hale-Bopp Comet was appearing in our skies for months at a time. Some of you might remember that. And we looked in awe at this sign in the sky. But there were some, led by two individuals, Marshall Applewhite and Betty Nettles, who became convinced that behind that comet there was a spacecraft. And that if they took their lives, that the extraterrestrial beings in that spacecraft would bring them up with them, give them new everlasting bodies that they would have, and they would be able to live with the aliens who took them. Confidence doesn't always mean correctness, does it? Certainty doesn't always mean that it's right and true. And in our text of Scripture this morning... Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18, we meet a group that is very confident in what they believe. Extraordinarily confident 
and sure and certain that certain convictions they have about the future are right to the point that they're willing to call Jesus out and think that he is wrong and try to expose Jesus' own uh, misunderstanding. We will see, as Jesus points out, that they are wrong, spectacularly wrong, even though they were so convinced that they were right. I wonder if you have any beliefs and convictions that are shaping the way you live, the decisions you make, and even your belief about heaven and hell, eternity itself, are settled on these convictions that you've developed over the years by whatever means. I wonder if you'd be willing to examine those things in the light of what the Bible says. Because it wouldn't it be a severe tragedy if certain convictions you held were false? It would be. The people we're going to look at this morning, the Sadducees, were wrong about one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the resurrection. Not the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ, although that is related to this, but the doctrine of the end-time resurrection of the dead. I'm going to read to you the text. We're going to get some context for you, and then we'll get going through it. Look at verse 18, and we're going to read through verse 27. And Sadducees came to him, to Jesus that is, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses, the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not God of the dead, but of The living, you, are quite wrong. Maybe the question that the Sadducees asks is something that keeps you up at night. Or maybe you've never wondered that in your life. Whatever the case, we're going to look at this text and understand what in the world is going on. We have here another attempt to stump Jesus. I don't know if it's catching on in the temple courts these days. It's the final week of Jesus' life as if everyone there is getting their own shot at trying to stump Jesus. If you remember, just a few weeks ago, we looked at the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders in chapter 11, verse 27 to 33. They're trying to stump Jesus. They're trying to discredit Jesus, and they're going to do so by asking him a question about his authority. They ask him a religious question. Who do you think you are to clear the temple as you did? A religious question asking him about his own authority. 
But then that's not it. He responds to them, and then come those whom those people sent, the Pharisees and the Herodians. You see this in chapter 12, verse 13. The Pharisees and the Herodians now come to Jesus to trap him in his talk. Verse 13 says that. And they ask him a political question. So first you got a religious question. Now you get a political question. This again is to try to get him to stumble in his words and say something that will get him, uh, get him in trouble with either the political side of things or the religious side of things. They ask him about taxes. Taxes. Should we pay taxes or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? That's what they ask him. And now, after Jesus deals with that and masterfully answers their question, another group comes. In verse 18, we get the Sadducees. The Sadducees ask this question related to what will happen in the resurrection after a woman's been married to seven men of the same family, whose wife will she be? It's a theological question. See, the Sadducees, we've got to get to know them a little bit so we understand what's going on in this text. The Sadducees, whenever they're mentioned in the New Testament, which isn't often, they're mentioned in correlation to one of their defining distinctives, what they believed. And here, it's right there in verse 18, what it meant to be a Sadducee in part was that you did not believe in the future resurrection of the dead. You denied that. They were Jews. They believed in the Torah, the Old Testament first five books, but they did not believe in the rest of the Old Testament's authority. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that to them was authoritative. The rest of it was good, it was helpful, but not authoritative like the Torah was. That's what the Sadducees believed. And because they felt convinced that you couldn't make an argument about the resurrection in the Torah, they defied the common belief of all the Jews at the time, and they denied the resurrection. They denied the resurrection. Now, the Old Testament does teach in the Old Testament very clearly teaches that there is a resurrection. Let me just list a few of these verses. If you wanted to go study them later, you can take a look. Job chapter 19, verse 26. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I will die, but in my flesh, in my resurrected body, I will see God. Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. This was understood to be a clear teaching of the resurrection of the dead, and came to be understood as a, resur- uh, a text un- that uh, pointed us to the resurrection of the Messiah. In Psalm 49, verses 14 and 15, Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. These texts begin to get pieced together to give us a theology of resurrection. It becomes even more clear in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Isaiah read Isaiah this morning. We read it, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. In chapter 26 of Isaiah, verse 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. 
The theology of the resurrection becomes more and more clear as we go through the Old Testament to the point where toward the end in Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament taught that there was a coming a future resurrection of the dead. This is what all Jews believed, all except this small but powerful group called the Sadducees. You know, the, the, in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, and so this is uh, the events that are taking place are in the 30s AD, the early 30s, the death of Christ happens around 33 AD. You get to 70 AD, Jerusalem gets overrun by the Romans. And when, the, when Jerusalem got overrun by the Romans, many Jewish groups struggled to continue to exist. The Sadducees actually ceased to exist. So we actually don't know much about them according to what the history books tell us. What we have in Scripture is that they did not believe in the resurrection. And from extra-biblical sources, one of the other uh, features of their belief was that they did not believe in spirits. They were something like, although they did believe in God as the ultimate spirit, angels and demons, they did not believe. They believed that there was no afterlife. They believed that when the body died, the soul died with it. So this is the Sadducees. They're there in the temple, and they come. They come to Jesus. It's almost as if they see all the other people talking to Jesus and asking him their questions and trying to stump Jesus. And they want a little bit of the action, too. Remember where we are in this, in the order of events. It's the last week of Jesus' life. Sunday, what happened? He came into Jerusalem. It's the triumphal entry. Monday, what happened? He clears the temple. He calls out the false worship and the greed and the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. Now on Tuesday, he's teaching. And if you look in your Bible, he's, he's teaching from the end of chapter 11, verse 20, all the way through all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 is his teaching. Prove to Jesus or try to discredit Jesus before the crowds uh, because the Sadducees, in a sense, were already discredited by many of those in the crowds who did believe in the resurrection. The crowds would have all believed in the resurrection. What they're actually trying to do is to use Jesus as kind of some publicity stunt. Almost like Jesus is a walking billboard for them to present their case that the resurrection is absurd and should not be believed. They want to stump Jesus, and in stumping Jesus, they want to stump everyone else about the resurrection. They want their doctrinal view to hold the power of the day so that they would be recognized as the ones who are right. And so they ask this question to stump Jesus, but also to try to stump everyone there who would have believed in the resurrection. They're trying to prove, listen, that the resurrection of the dead is an absurd belief. That's what they're doing. Let's look at their question again. Verse 19. Teacher, again, feigning honor and respect. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, they're quoting Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, by the way. This is what they're referencing. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up 
the offspring for his brother. So the brother's got to marry his brother's wife, or yeah, brother's wife if his brother dies, okay? <laughs> and on and on. And so they present this question. There were seven brothers. First took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And then the second took her and died and left no offspring. The third likewise. I mean, if you're brother number seven here, you're probably trembling in your boots by the time it's your turn to marry this woman um, because he dies too. Last of all, the woman also dies, okay? You, you, you get what they're doing. They're not asking a sincere question. They're not coming with a sincere theological inquiry. Jesus, you know, help us understand. We're not sure what might happen. You understand, they're trying to ask a question to expose what they think is absurd. They're trying to make a point. This was the law. It was a civil law given in Israel as a way to... Uh, perpetuate and pass on the family name. It was something that they were to do as a way to pass on that name. It was a good and honorable thing to do. You see this happening in various places or being referenced to in various places in the Old Testament. We never see it actually taking place in the Old Testament. We see it referenced from time to time. So they imagine this thing, this scenario, this bizarre scenario to try to get Jesus to say something Wrong to stump him in his understanding of the resurrection, to stump the whole idea of the resurrection for those listening. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now you can almost imagine them like giggling as they say it. Like, like, do you have an answer for this one? They're they're trying to to catch him. Is she married to all of them? Is she married to none of them? What happens in this resurrection? Remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. This so-called resurrection that you're describing. What happens to this woman? And Jesus' answer exposes them. And we're going to walk through it in three parts. Three parts. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at first why they're wrong about the resurrection. The Sadducees. Why they're wrong about the resurrection. Second, we're going to look at what exactly they've gotten wrong. And third, scriptural proof that they're wrong. Scriptural proof that they're wrong. They were certain. They had their convictions. They thought they were right. And Jesus is going to show them why they're wrong, what they're wrong about, and proof that they're wrong. Let's first look at why they're wrong. Look at verse 30, or sorry, 24. Jesus gives them the fundamental reason why they got this wrong. He says to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Let's just pause there. Jesus does not hesitate to tell them, you are wrong. You are wrong. You were confident. You thought you were right. You had certainty, but you are wrong. Isn't it possible for us to be highly confident and severely wrong? The sincerity of a person's belief does not increase the likelihood of them being right. Whether you join a cult whether you believe a lie, whether you adopt false doctrines, it does not matter how certain you are, truth is truth, and if we deny truth, we are wrong. Have you ever heard somebody say something along the lines of, I just believe it with all my heart, that, and then they go on to say things that are so out of touch with reality that they couldn't possibly be true. It doesn't matter how sincere that person is, Holding that belief 
If it is not true, it is not true. It is possible to be sincere and sincerely wrong. The Sadducees were sincere. At least they came to understand this belief about there being no resurrection. They held it tightly. They had certainty, even to the point where they're willing to confront Jesus about their belief. And they are wrong. These intellectual elites are wrong. It is helpful for us to think about this. How do we come to understand and know truth? And to have certainty about the truth? Can scholars be wrong? Can the commentaries you pull off the shelf be wrong? Can scientists or experts or authors be wrong? Can pastors and preachers be wrong? The answer is yes. Yes, they can. We are susceptible to error. And even as in the case of the Sadducees, it's possible to be severely wrong about something and have a measure of authority and be able to speak to others with an air of authority aiming to persuade others of the position you so certainly hold all the while being wrong. That's what's happening here with these Sadducees. Now, why are they wrong? Look at what Jesus says. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Why were the Sadducees wrong about the resurrection? Why had they come to believe that there would be no end-time resurrection and that there would be no afterlife The answer Jesus gives is because they are ignorant of the Scriptures and ignorant of the power of God. That is a very important piece of information for us, isn't it? That it is possible to be severely wrong, but it's also possible for us to know why we get things wrong. The reason we get things wrong about significant aspects of life. The reason people get the big questions about the nature of God wrong and the nature of man wrong and the nature of heaven and hell wrong. The reason we get these things wrong, the reason the Sadducees got these things wrong was because they did not believe the Scriptures. They were ignorant of the Scriptures. They were ignorant of the power of God. Those two things, you can't really separate them. It's not as if you have scriptures and the power of God as two totally separate things that they did not believe. They actually are tied together hand to hand. Genesis 1.1. What does it reveal? Literally the very first book in the very first verse say that there is a God. The scriptures reveal to us that there is a God who is what? All powerful. Everything that exists comes into existence by his all powerful word. He speaks everything into existence. So from the very beginning, we get a God who speaks and a God who is infinite in his power. If the Sadducees had read and believed the first verse of the Bible, they would have understood that the resurrection is not outside the realm of possibility. They were ignorant of the scriptures and they were ignorant of the power of God. God has given us scriptures and we know That God, since he is a God of truth, since God, as the scriptures say, never lies, that everything we have in the scriptures 
is from his own character, resembling his own character, and therefore it too is truthful, without error, infallible. And if we want to know truth about him, about ourselves, and even about the afterlife, where do we go? We go to the scriptures. Sadducees, they read it, but they missed it, didn't they? They could have been protected from their grave and eternal error if they were not, as Jesus says, ignorant of the scriptures and the power of God. I want you to think about how much error sometimes is part of our lives. How often does error creep into our lives because of our lack of familiarity with the word of God? How much of us allow error to live in our thinking because we are ignorant of what the Bible says about an issue? Ever thought about that one? So many of us could be thinking wrongly about God, thinking wrongly about ourselves, thinking wrongly about the nature of sin, the nature of temptation, thinking wrongly about angels, about demons, about heaven, about hell, about church, about relationships, about marriage, about family, about parenting, about neighbors, about love, about humility, about leisure, about rest, about suffering, about pain, about pleasure. We could be thinking wrongly about every category of life if we're ignorant of the scriptures. And then we find ourselves in challenging situations. With family members, with children, with co-workers, with clients, with in-laws, with friends. We face, we face complexities in this life, don't we? And sometimes we're ignorant of any scriptural principles that would allow us to know how to live through these things. And then sometimes we've been influenced by errors that have been passed down, maybe in our family from generation to generation, or the errors from the outside of the secular world that have caused us to think certain ways that are just simply not true. We sometimes hold tightly to quotes we read in books or on the internet. We repost them as if they're gospel truth. We hold on to cliches that were passed down from people we admired. And then, in addition to all these errors that have so crowded our minds like fog, sometimes we might even find in our own hearts an unwillingness no motivation to correct the errors. There's no willingness to study and to think and to look through and search the Scriptures to overcome our ignorance that we might better know God and better know the truth. Kenneth Birding wrote, Christians used to be known as people of one book. They memorized it, meditated on it, talked about it, and taught it to others. We don't do that anymore. And in a very real sense, we're starving ourselves to death. Mark Knoll, in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, started his book with this sentence. The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. We live in a world, as R.C. Sproul put it, might be the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Western civilization. And the church has been swept up with it. We have become an anti-intellectual people, not willing to study 
not willing to ponder, not willing to reflect, not willing to analyze and assess and assimilate the Word of God into our thinking so that it shapes how we view everything. This is a grave danger for the church, isn't it? Could it be possible that the church would fall into errors that were preventable if we only knew the Scriptures? Could it be that there are even now segments of the church of Jesus Christ in various parts of the world that are drifting from key critical doctrines because they, like the Sadducees, do not know the Scriptures or the power of God and they're banking on human ingenuity and innovation and worldly wisdom? How much error could we here at Grace Rancho avoid if we have a firm and thorough grasp of the Scriptures? See, one of the things Jesus is doing here is highlighting and underlining the urgency to gain scriptural knowledge. We were made to know God and to love Him and to worship Him as He truly is. And listen, church, can you worship a God that you don't know? Serve Him and be completely ignorant of what He calls you to do? It's like a servant being with a master and refusing to listen to anything the master says. We, we're called to know him and to love him. Not knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but knowledge for the sake of love and worship and obedience. Church, think of this on a personal level. How much do you cherish the word of God? How much does it play a part in your own life? How much error maybe is crowding in and you don't quite understand where it is because you don't quite understand the Scriptures or the power of God. We have people who have paved the way before us, men and women who have loved the Scriptures. I can think of a few. William Tyndale burnt at the stake for defending the Scriptures. John Wycliffe devoting his entire life to translating the Scriptures. John Calvin shaping the modern world by simply preaching the Scriptures. John Newton reading it and reading it until it was blood, and he gave us some of the best writings that has ever been produced in the English language, like, like Pilgrim's Progress. I remember reading George Mueller read the Scriptures an estimated 200 times before he died. Listen, church, I have never met a godly man or a godly woman who does not love the Scriptures and devote themselves to the Scriptures and meditate on the Scriptures and think hard about the Scriptures and in studying the Scriptures comes to see the glorious power of the living God. That person doesn't exist. And if we want to be a powerful church that taps into the very power of God, we have to be a church that is rooted in the Word of God, that comes to know the living God, to have communion and fellowship with the living God. If we do not, we will become like Sadducees, who over the period of time living without true understanding of the Scriptures, without true understanding of the power of God, we begin to drift from the very doctrines that make us Christian. The Sadducees got a question about the resurrection deadly wrong. And I hope there's none of us who are holding on to beliefs that are so wrong. We don't know that they're wrong because we haven't actually taken the time to study the Word of God. Coming to the end of a year, 
Just a few days left in 2021. I hope some of you guys spend some time and reflect on the previous year and think about the ways that God has blessed you and also think about the ways that you're growing and the Lord is growing you. And I wonder if any of you, as you think about the coming year and think about things you could do differently and areas of your life you could focus on in terms of growth, I wonder if any of you would be served by committing to read the Bible afresh in 2022 picking up a reading plan or grabbing a few friends to go through it with you, to study the scriptures, to ponder them, to talk about them, to learn the living God through them. Fathers, I wonder if you make any time to bless your children by reading scripture to them. Do you read it around the dinner table, maybe the breakfast table, You have a little catechism you use where you teach them theology and point them to the truths of Scripture. Mothers, could you sing the great hymns of the faith to your children as they fall to sleep? Could you recite verses to them throughout the day? Could you set up times in their own schedules where they have time to read the Bible on their own? Could you encourage biblical literacy in our children? We don't want to be a church guilty of not giving our children the most precious gift of the knowledge of the truth? I praise God that there are so many of you here this morning that want to know God. I am encouraged by the number of people showing up to our course seminars, learning the Bible, studying theology, and the number of you that meet for Bible study and study the Bible on your own in private. Praise the Lord. Let's excel still more in those things. Let's grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures and of the power of God. And let's see these Sadducees as a kind of cautionary tale for what it might look like to drift from a knowledge of the Scriptures and of the power of God. They got this wrong about the resurrection because they had not devoted themselves to the Scriptures and the power of God. Let's not go down that path. Let's Secondly, let's look at what they got wrong. Let's look at what they got wrong. Look with me there at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Remember, the question of the Sadducees was based on their belief that there would be marriage in the resurrection. That's what they're basing their entire question on. The absurdity is in the question of, well, if she was married to seven men, who will she be married to in the resurrection? Jesus can sweep away the absurdity of their question by simply stating the fact that there actually is no marriage in heaven. So once that's cleared up, the Sadducees have no leverage in their question anymore, do they? There's actually no marriage in eternity. This is important for us to think about. They don't marry, nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Every marriage that's ever existed is temporary, momentary. We were were reading this last night with our family, and one of my kids asked, well, why at weddings do they talk about uh, the vows being forever? And I said, well, actually, that's not what traditional vows say. What do they say? Till death do us part. 
that there is coming a day that the actual marriage covenant comes to an end in death. That no marriage is eternally permanent. No marriage lasts through death. In this vapor of a life, God gives some to have marriage, not all. God gives some to have children, not all. And here Jesus points out the reality that we must understand that marriage is merely a preparation for that which is ultimate, our marriage as the church to Jesus himself. Marriage is pointing to that reality. If you were to go back to Genesis and you were to read in Genesis and try to ask yourself, well, what does the Bible teach about marriage? You would understand that God created marriage for a number of things, two of them being one, uh, to solve the problem of loneliness. Remember, Adam was lonely and God created Eve to be his helper, to be his companion. That's the first marriage. God gave Adam this bride, Eve, as a gift. And second, this allowed for human procreation to take place. Remember, Adam and Eve were to fill the earth and to subdue the earth and to fill the whole world with their offspring. That was part of what God was doing in marriage. So it was to solve the problem of loneliness and to allow for procreation in the, in the family. That's what God was doing. Now you think about, well, in the resurrection, will there be any need for those things? Well, there won't, need, there won't be any problem of loneliness in the resurrection, will there? In glory, there will be no loneliness at all. I like how Jesus puts it in Matthew 13, 43. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. They will be so glorious. We will be given glorious bodies. We will be sinless. We will be perfected. We will have no lack. We will be perfectly united to Christ and fulfilled and satisfied entirely in Him. There will be no place for loneliness in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the resurrection. And so the purpose of marriage will have been fulfilled. And so there will no longer be that because all of us will experience perfect unity in all the relationships with all the redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth. Amazing for us to think about that this is what's going to be the place. Uh, This is what's going to take place. God also instituted marriage for procreation, but in the resurrection, the full number of God's redeemed will be complete and there will be no need for procreation. All God's people will be there. We will live undying like angels for all eternity and there will be no need for procreation. No loneliness, no need for procreation. All of us will share perfectly relationships with one another. Uh, Sometimes we talk about this and we go, man, this is just so hard for us to grasp, isn't it? It's a hard one. It's just so outside of our human experience. But one of the things it's doing is it's pointing us to the, the glory of the next life being so utterly beyond things we can grasp. There is glory coming that our little puny pea brains of today can't possibly get a hold of. It does not mean, this does not mean we will love our spouses less if we're married, since we won't be married to them. It's like, man, will I even love my you know, spouse in, in, in heaven? That's not what it means at all. Actually, it means we will love them more perfectly than we ever loved them before in all our lives on earth. But what it will mean is that all our relationships with every person will be even more intimate, even more close, even more joyful, and more satisfying than the closest relationship we ever had on earth. Can you imagine that? You ever had a friend that you just trust that you love, and there's a mutual affection. You know they trust you, and you know they love you. And you could share anything with this friend, anything at all. 
And there's a genuine affection they have for you and you have for them. There's a fearlessness to just be yourself around them. The, the best relationship we've had like that on earth, imagine that perfected and in every person you've ever seen in the new heavens and new earth, enjoying that kind of relationship. It'll be glorious. And one of the things this means, though, as an implication, is, that, is marriage ultimate? One author said that this reminds us that marriage is penultimate. You know what penultimate means? It means it's not the ultimate. It means it's second. There is no human relationship more important than your spouse if you're married. No human relationship on earth more important than your spouse if you're married. But still, it is penultimate, not ultimate. In fact, if you make your marriage ultimate, it'll lead to problems. You see, marriage is one of those glorious gifts God gives to his people that he allows us to enjoy. But because it is such a glorious gift, we are tempted to idolize it. Singles can idolize marriage, and married couples can idolize marriage. Some singles could idolize marriage by thinking that if they just got married, it would be the solution to every ache. It would fulfill their every longing. It would be the satisfying life they've always longed for if they just got married. So that they're willing to compromise wisdom to get that which they desire, that marriage. And it could also be problematic for the married couple who idolizes marriage. That you look to your spouse to be the one who satisfies you and gives you all your heart's longings and all your heart's desires. You know what happens when you try to extract from your spouse what only Jesus can give? You end up crushing them under the weight because they can never live up to the expectations you've set on them. And then you end up being disappointed yourself because they will never be able to be a Messiah to you. Marriage is a good gift, but right here Jesus is saying there will be no marriage in heaven. Marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not the final thing for all people in all places and all times. God gives us, gives us something else. He gives us his son. And in giving us his son, he gives us the only thing that will actually satisfy, that will actually fulfill us, a relationship with the living God through him. We can know Him and be satisfied in Him whether we're married or whether we're single or whether we're married and the marriage is hard. It's not all we hoped it would be. We have a marriage to Christ, the Bible says. We are His bride and we are His beloved and we can find our hope in Him. They were wrong about this whole idea of there being no resurrection and their whole conundrum they're trying to present to them because they were wrong about the nature of the resurrection and the nature of marriage in the resurrection. Marriage is temporary. It's a good gift. It's okay to want it. It's okay to have it. It's okay to enjoy it. But it can become an idol just like any other good gift can. So let's look at the third. Proof that they're wrong about the resurrection. Verse 26. Proof that Jesus is going to offer, that they're wrong about the resurrection. Now he says there in verse 26, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, 
There's no chapters and verses in Jesus' Bible that they would have used. You had to point to a place in the Bible by pointing to a well-known feature. That's why he says the passage about the bush, it's actually Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, to Moses, that is, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Remember, the Sadducees rejected all of Scripture outside the Pentateuch. Remember that? So what does Jesus want to do when he's going to make a case for the resurrection? He's going to go straight to the Pentateuch. He's going to show you, hey, you missed it. And I'm going to prove it to you from the very books you claim to be authoritative. I'm going to show you what you've missed. He points him to the passage about the bush, and then he quotes Exodus 3, 6, I am, note that tense, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. How many of you making a case for the reality of the resurrection would go to Exodus 3, 6? Jesus goes to Exodus 3, 6 to show that the Old Testament, even the Pentateuch itself, the Torah that they held to be authoritative, actually did imply the resurrection of the dead. It taught it. The Sadducees missed it. And Jesus' implication here is as if they would have paid attention to the language in Exodus 3, they should have gotten it. But they did not. What is Jesus pointing to? How, how is he doing this? Think about it here. Here's Jesus' logic. When God revealed himself to Moses saying, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he does not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does present tense indicate? It indicates a current reality. A current reality. In other words, when God was speaking to Moses about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been dead for a long time, he was speaking in the present tense saying, he is their God. Jesus is extrapolating a logical position from that, saying that if he's speaking in the present tense, that he is currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are actually still alive in the Spirit. They had died in the flesh, but he was their God. He is showing the Sadducees, listen, he is not saying he was their God. He is their God. He is not saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ceased to exist. And they're dead eternally. They've perished. They've been annihilated. They don't exist anymore. No, if that were the case, he would have used the word, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is implying that they are still alive in the Spirit and that he is their God. And what's further implied is that he will continue to be their God and grant them resurrection at the end. He's not a God of the dead. If they were dead to never rise again, they would be dead. And Jesus says God's not a God of the dead. He is a God of the living. And since he is their God, they also will rise to life on the last day. It is his defense of the resurrection. 
You are quite wrong, he closes with. You missed it. The present tense of God's revelation to Moses about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is evidence that he is God of the living, that those who died yet live in the Spirit, and they will live more fully in the life to come as they receive a glorified body. Just reflect on this for a moment, church. That there is a coming resurrection that everyone you've ever known who's ever died is actually alive in the Spirit. Passed on to the next chapter and is awaiting the final chapter when they are resurrected to new life in a new glorious body that can never die. Everyone you've ever known who's died will rise again. As C.S. Lewis once put it, you have never talked to a mere mortal. We will all live forever. That puts a lot of significance into all our small talk and conversations, the things we do with one another, the way we treat one another. We all will live forever. We will die. Our spirits will live on. But we will be raised And on the last day, we will stand before King Jesus to receive our eternal destination. Jesus knew there would be a resurrection. He was certain of it for three reasons. One, because the Old Testament taught it. Two, because he knew that he would rise from the dead. You're there in in Mark chapter 12. I want you to turn back real quick to chapter 10. Just two chapters earlier. Verse 34. Chapter 10, verse 34 He's describing his own death. They will mock him, talking about himself, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He's going, I know I'm going to rise from the dead. That's coming. He knows he will rise from the dead. He knows that that's what he's been called to do. You're there in chapter 10. Look forward to verse 45. For even the Son of Man, again referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew what he had come to do. He came to lay down his life. He came to die on the cross. He came to be the sin bearer. He came to be the one who would take upon himself all the sins of everyone who would ever believe to have those sins imputed to him. And then he would be nailed to the cross. He would suffer and die. He would bear the wrath of God. He would pay for the sins of his people. And then he knew it and he declared it and he predicted it. He would rise from the dead. He rose again on the third day. He predicted it. He knew that this was part of his saving work, that he must rise. And there's a third reason that Jesus knew there would be a resurrection of the end. at the end. Here it is. It's because he himself will be the one who calls all the dead to rise. That is an amazing thought. Have you ever marveled at this church? Have you ever marveled at the glorious power of the Son of God? That he called Lazarus to live, and Lazarus lived. But there is coming a day that he will call all the dead to rise. That all will rise at his command. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. He will command the dead to live and all nations and all peoples will be brought before him. What power, what authority. All will hail King Jesus on that day and we will stand before him. 
And those who have trusted in his saving love, his finished work on the cross, his glorious resurrection, they've given their whole lives and all their hearts to trust him for their eternity. They will be redeemed and brought into that everlasting kingdom that we sung about this morning. And those who reject him, who have heard that message and rejected it, those who have pushed him away, They've denied the testimony even of general revelation and they have not given to God the worship due his name. They too will meet Jesus in that resurrected body on the last day and they will be sentenced to eternal condemnation. See, we will all die. We will be separated from our bodies, but sometime in the future we will be reunited to them, resurrected with them to stand before Jesus. How do we know that's true? Jesus rose from the dead. Paul makes it clear. He says, if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. (laughs) Jesus' own resurrection is the preview of ours. Jesus is the first to rise, but not the last. All will rise. Church, I wonder how often you think of things like this. Reality is more fantasy than you realize. We are not living in a materialistic world like the Sadducees imagined. God exists. Spirits are real. Angels and demons abound. There is an afterlife. There is a resurrection. There is a heaven. There is a hell. Don't let this modern world fool you. Live as if it's all true. Believe that though you die, you will live again to stand before your Creator and trust in His saving grace and live in obedience to Him, the King of glory. Don't live like materialists, like practical atheists, or like Sadducees. Rather, what should you do? Build your life on the Word of God. Let the Scriptures fill your mind. Don't be overgrown with ignorance and misunderstandings because you're not willing to study and know the Scriptures and the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work in us this morning that we would not be like the Sadducees, that we would not be drifting from your truth and thus embracing things that are not true. My prayer goes out. We pray this morning for anyone here who is holding with great conviction a belief that is false. By your grace, would you open their eyes, help them to see the glorious future you have in store, Help them to trust you entirely and completely. Receive forgiveness of sins. Live for you, giving you the worship you and you alone deserve. In Jesus' name.